turning your copy of the scriptures or scrolling your Bible app to the Gospel of Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Today we're going to be focusing specifically on verses 9 through 18. Luke chapter 20 beginning in verse 9. If you're physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word and follow along soundly as I read aloud from Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 9. This is what the word of God says. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, They said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So before we get into the text we just read, let's set the stage a bit by going back a bit. And so look at chapter 19, beginning in verse 45. Uh, Jesus goes into the temple in Jerusalem and drives out those who were selling things. In verse 47, it says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. And so you need to keep in mind, this is Passion Week, the week that starts with what we refer to as Palm Sunday and will end with what we refer to as Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. Now, verse 47 in chapter 19 says he was teaching daily in the temple, but keep in mind Jesus had caused quite a stir, right, in the temple when he drove out those who were selling things. We can't forget that this is the backdrop behind Jesus' temple teaching in our text today. Jesus kicks out the merchants, then he took his place in the temple and taught and would do so for most of what would be Wednesday and Thursday of Passion Week or Holy Week. Pick it up in verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words, which brings us to chapter 20. Verse one says, one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, what things do you think they were referring to when they say, By by what authority do you do these things? Well, it might have been Jesus' teaching, but chances are they're really saying, hey, what gives you the right to like evict the people from selling stuff here in the temple and then take up residence teaching on your own? By what authority do you do these things? But Jesus, instead of answering the question, 
asks them a question in verse 3. And it says, he answered them, even though he didn't answer them, but his reply to them was, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why do you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus says, if you don't want to talk about authority, I don't want to talk about authority. And that brings us to our text today. Jesus says he's not going to answer their questions since they won't answer his. But he does go on teaching, and he does so in the form of a parable that we're going to look at in our text today. Pick it up in verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Now, Jesus... The master teacher, Jesus, the perfect teacher, always used illustrations that were very familiar to his original audience. That's important to remember. We're going to come back to that later. The fact that Jesus always uses illustrations that were very familiar to his original audience. Vineyards are not very familiar to us, but they were very familiar to the people who were listening to this in Jesus' day. Vineyards were very common in Jesus' day, and quite frankly, very common in that particular Region. There were hillsides that were somewhat terraced, and so it made these flat lands that were really easy uh, to use for vineyards, and really they were quite successful uh, in planting vineyards. They were very fruitful. And so this man planted a vineyard, and so people are like, all right, verse 9 says he let it out to tenants. So this was also very common, to rent out the land to tenant farmers who would rent the land from him, then they would pay him a percentage of their earnings in return for using the land. Verse 9 tells us that that the landowner leased out his land, and then what? He went into another country for a long while. Now, both another country and a long while gives us the impression that he wasn't just down the road a bit, right? Another country, far away. And the fact that it was a long while, he wasn't just a a, a, a one-week, two-week, even a four-week trip. This was a long, long trip. He was very far away for quite some time and was there even during harvest season because of what we read in verse 10. Verse 10 says, When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, here's what you need to remember. Everything happening in the parable thus far is very normal. Uh, People would be hearing this story and they'd be like, okay, right, I got it. Okay, nothing has wowed people at all. No one is suspicious of anything. No one's like, where's he going with this? What is he doing? They're just hearing a very normal telling of something that could happen on any day of any given week. The fact that there was a farmer who owned a vineyard, the fact that he lent it out to tenant farmers, and the fact that he would then collect rent. Nothing here is crazy. But what we read in verse 10, uh, excuse me, what we read in verse Yes, verse 10 changes everything. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Okay, but the tenants beat him, wait, what? And sent him away empty-handed. So this didn't happen. So we just went from very ordinary, normal, to something unbelievably strange. Guy owned a vineyard, got it. He lent it out, got it. Went to collect rent, got it. The guy went to collect rent, was beaten. Wait, what? Back up. 
Like this didn't normally happen. Nobody would call being a landlord like a, a, a full contact sport. And so now all of a sudden, this very normal telling of a story, this parable, has become very strange. In fact, what we read as the word beat uh, in verse 10 is, is pretty severe. The Greek word is actually dero, which literally means to remove the skin. So the fact that the man went away empty-handed is odd. The fact that he was beaten is odder. The fact that he was beaten as severely as he was is even all the more strange. Pick it up in verse 11. And he sent another servant. Let's try this again. Just here to collect the rent. He sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. So again... What started as a very unexciting story of everyday life is getting stranger by the minute. The second person sent to collect the rent was also unsuccessful, also beaten, same Greek word, but this time there's an element of shame involved, treated him shamefully. They not only didn't pay him, but they dishonored him. Now, we're not told exactly what that means, how they dishonored him, but again, very, very strange behavior from what was a pretty common occurrence in that day and age. Verse 12 says he sent out a third person to collect the rent. This one they also wounded and cast out. Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Like, what? Okay, this has gone terrible. What shall I do? I'll send my son. I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Maybe there was a, this is all very odd, but maybe they didn't trust these servants, hi, I'm here to collect for Joe. No, you're not. They beat him up. Like, that's odd, but maybe they didn't recognize him. So I'll send someone whom they'll, they'll recognize. I'll send my son, and perhaps they will respect him. Verse 14 says this, but when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, so, all right, everyone bring it in. Like, they're, they're commiserating with one another. Uh, They're talking to one another. They said to themselves, this is the heir. So did they recognize him? A hundred percent. This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. So according to traditional law of the time, land that had gone unclaimed for a period of three years became the property of the people who worked it. And so the owner was hoping recognition of the son would be helpful, but it wasn't. In fact, verse 14 says all, all they did was see him. There's not even a, in part of the didn't say, and they spoke to him, and he said, I'm here for the rent. All they did was see him, recognize him, and decide to kill him so that they could take the land. Verse 15 says, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then, so Jesus poses this question as he's telling this story. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And he answers it with the only logical answer. He will come and destroy those tenants, give the vineyard to others. Like, this is not working. And so he'll come to his squatter farmers, uh, destroy them, not only because they didn't pay, but they also killed his son, and they give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. Now, here's the question. Why would they respond this way? 
This is a hypothetical story. It does not involve them at face value. But here's why they respond that way. They get it. They're connecting the dots. In verse 16, the word heard means they heard with understanding. Not just they heard because they were the earshot. They heard because they don't have a, they're not deaf. No, they heard, they got it. They heard with understanding. They understand it. And whenever there's a, I would say, parable, parallel. When you see a parable, look for a parallel. This is not just story time with Jesus. He is telling this story because he is telling a parable because he wants to make a parallel illustration. And they are getting this illustration perfectly. They get it. They understand it. They're connecting the dots between the characters in the parable Jesus is telling them. And here's what they understand. The owner of the vineyard is God the Father. The vineyard itself is Israel. Those working the vineyard would be the Pharisees, those who are supposed to care for Israel. They get it. And the different ones that were sent by the owner of the vineyard, again, who is God, but rejected by the workers represented the many different prophets of old that were sent by God the Father all throughout the Old Testament and were rejected by the Israelites, especially the Pharisees, over and over and over and over again. Just a casual reading of the Old Testament shows that there's this like uniform hostility to the prophets that were sent by God. It's one of the most remarkable, noteworthy features of Jewish history. The manner in which they rejected the prophets may be varied. The degree to which they rejected them varied. But hostile rejection of those sent by God, pretty common denominator throughout the Old Testament. For example, According to tradition, the prophet Isaiah was sawn in half with a wooden saw. Now, uh, when we read Hebrews 11, uh, when we're talking, which we refer to as the great hall of faith, which uh, lists the many, many heroes of the faith, there's a portion in Hebrews 11 that says, and they were sawn in two. A Hebrew reading that would have known traditionally, oh, they're talking about Isaiah because we like did that. Uh, Jeremiah was constantly mistreated. He was thrown into a pit, Jeremiah 38, and according to historic tradition, was stoned to death by the Jews. Ezekiel was hated, always faced hostility. Amos was forced to flee for his life. Zechariah was rejected. And Micaiah, not Micah, Micaiah was slapped across the face. This was this is just a sampling of how the Jewish people treated the prophets that God had sent them over and over again. So those listening to Jesus' parable know this. They're not stupid. They're connecting the dots perfectly, which we see because of their response, which brings us to point number one. You should be grateful for God's patient, persistent pursuit of his people. You should be grateful for God's patient, persistent pursuit of his people. If you just look back through the text we just read, you see in verse 10, he sent a servant. In verse 11, he sent another servant. In verse 12, he sent a third. In verse 13, he sent his only son. You should be grateful for God's patient, persistent pursuit of his people. God's not the kind of God who's like, tried once, didn't work, moved on. I sent someone, didn't like it, that's fine. Literally, to hell with you. That's not how God works. God is patient, he's persistent, and he pursues his people. Some people are confronted with the gospel once, and they believe. That might be your story. If that is, well and good, praise God. But others, it takes time. It takes time and time again over many seeds being sown, many seeds being planted. 
Some people are confronted with truth, but they don't believe. Other people like Jesus, don't really have a problem with Jesus, but they don't love him. They understand how to be saved. They could tell you if somebody, if you ask them, hey, how are people saved? They'd be like, I have an answer for you. They believe on Jesus and they would be saved. There's nothing to even doubt the truth of scripture. They like Jesus a lot. They just don't love him. And to not love him is to reject him. But instead of God literally, again, just, just smiting them, right? Just literally just sending them to hell. He patiently, persistently pursues his people time and time again. I have to confess, I don't think that's the main point of this parable. I don't think that's why Jesus is telling us. Like just, to, just want to remind you how nice God is that he sends people all the time. But I was struck by it. I was reminded of this truth as I considered, wow, God sure is patient and persistent as he pursues his people, as he chases people down to rescue them from their own sin, to rescue them from hell. He's not just a one-and-done God. He constantly goes after people over and over again, and we should be grateful that he does that. Keep your place in Luke 19, excuse me, Luke 20, and flip back to Luke 13. Uh, Luke 13. I want to show you another parable that Jesus told. We covered this some time ago when we were in Luke 13, and it's the parable of the barren fig tree. Pick it up in verse 6 of Luke 13. And he, Jesus, told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find None, no fruit, cut it down. Like, just cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Verse eight says, and he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And so here we have this man who planted a a fig tree in a vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it like he does each and every year, but he finds none of it. And so he goes to the gardener. He's like, why do we even have this thing? Why not just, like, it's a, like, just, let's just cut it down. It produces no fruit. It produces no shade. The other ones are doing fine. We got a dud. Let's just cut it down. Let's make room for other things. There's no sense leaving it here. But the gardener says, you know what? Let's give it some more time. We will eventually cut it down. Let me add some fertilizer. Let me try again. Let me come back to it. Let me show it a little TLC. Let's see how it does. And if it produces fruit, won't we be glad we didn't cut it down? And of course, eventually, if it doesn't produce fruit, we'll cut it down. But let's give it some more time. That's another illustration of how God is with people. Let's not just cut this one out. Let's not just eliminate. Let's just say we've tried. God's going to go back and plant seeds again and send someone else and cause something else to happen that somebody would think, wow, how could that happen if God wasn't after me? Or, or, or have somebody else come and confront them with truth. Or have somebody else come and, and remind them of the love of God and the mercy of God and the sovereign grace of God. Let's try again and again and again. Second Peter 3.9 is in your outline. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So in other words, the reason Christ's return isn't immediate is because God is patient with sinners. He hasn't forgotten to send Christ back. He hasn't been too busy. He hasn't been distracted. He's not indifferent. On the contrary, he's patient and he's persistent and he's pursuing sinners like you and like me. It's a great verse. We see a little bit of the, the heart of God right there. People will perish, but he's not wishing they would perish. And so that 2 Peter 3, 9, we don't read that and think, oh, that means that God isn't going to send anybody to hell. Not true. He's not wishing that people would perish. He doesn't, have the, he doesn't smile about people perishing. They will perish in their sin. And God knows that that's just and he's right. It just doesn't make him happy. But oh my goodness, the rejoicing that happens when someone who is lost and is found and then there's a party thrown, right? Like we see in Luke 15. Oh, the the rejoicing that happens in heaven when one person is saved, when one person is snatched from the fire, when one person doesn't receive the punishment they deserve, but instead receives grace and mercy. People will perish. Unbelievers will perish in their sin, but 2 Peter 3.9 said God is not wishing, wanting, desirous, hoping that people would perish. And so again, although I don't think that's the main point of this parable, I don't think that's why Jesus is telling it, I couldn't help but read it and be reminded of God's patience with me, his persistence with me, his pursuit of me, and hopefully of you. Isaiah 30 and verse 18 says, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. And just before we move on, a quick question to pose to you by way of application. What about you? God is patient He's persistent. He pursues his people. Who have you given up on in your mind? Who have you hoped would come to Christ and they just haven't? Who have you prayed would bow the knee to the Lord and you think, I don't know what more can be done. Uh, I've, I've, I've prayed People have spoken to them. Maybe it's a child. You're like, I know the home they were raised in, so not perfect, but I know that they were exposed to the gospel. You may not be fed up and have given up on them. You might just be tired. You might just think, you know what? I don't mean to pattern God, but I'm kind of thinking that if God was going to save them, he would have by now. And so either intentionally you've said, I'm done praying. That's not usually the case. But sometimes it's just, it's fallen off your radar. You have unintentionally given up on someone. You don't pray for them to be saved anymore because, I mean, wouldn't they be saved by now? You, you, you stop thinking strategically or looking for opportunities to plant a seed because you've planted so many thus far and you're tired. You're done. Thanks be to God. That's not what we see in the text of Scripture concerning our Heavenly Father, amen? That he chases us down, that he, he pursues us, that he is persistent. And so we would do well to be reminded 
We ought not give up on people. We ought not give up praying for people. We ought not give up pursuing people as long as we're able to, that God might use that to do a huge work in that person's life to call them to saving faith and repentance. Getting back to our text, Luke chapter 20, uh, back to verse 15. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And so Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And they respond, surely not. And so again, what Jesus is saying is, just as the owner of the vineyard would evict the squatters, the tenants who stay and don't pay, just as the owner of the vineyard would exact justice because of their rebellion in beating the servants he sent, just as the owner of the vineyard would avenge the killing of his son, God will judge and condemn and destroy those who don't worship him, who rejected those he sent and would avenge those who wrongfully, unjustly killed his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Not only would he destroy them, but look at verse 16. It says he would give the vineyard to others. So in other words, God will give the, the stewardship of the truth of the gospel to those who would believe in him and truly follow King Jesus. The point is not that the Gentiles were replacing the Jews, not at all, or that the church was replacing Israel. That's not the point. The point is that there would be a change in leadership from the corrupt, apostate, hypocritical rulers of Israel to the apostles and disciples of Jesus Christ. And guess what? They got this loud and clear. Loud and clear, which is why they respond, surely not, which is, the, which is meganoitu, which is the most emphatic negation in the Greek language. They were like, oh gosh, no, oh heck no, 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 no. But he looked directly at them in verse 17. That Greek word, looked directly at them, he looked intently at them. He made eye contact with a purpose. And said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, something important is happening here. There's a a change in imagery. We're moving from uh, death of a a son that was killed to something different. Stones. Uh, specifically a cornerstone. And so we've moved out of the realm of vineyard, familiar with, people are familiar with it, servants being rejected, beaten, a son being killed. And now there's this like, wait, what? We're changing the picture now to stones, specifically a cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone is the most important stone of a stone building because if it properly set every angle for construction. And so you get this one wrong, you get the rest of the building wrong. And so the cornerstone was not just what, yeah, get a stone, we've got to shove it in the corner. It needs a cornerstone, let's just find a good stone. So there were stones that were rejected, like we can't use these for building, it's too small, it's too this, it's not the right shape, whatever. Then there's stones that were like, ooh, that's a good stone, let's use that for building. But then there's of the stones that were accepted for building. It's like, ooh, that one's perfect. 
So perfect that it can be the cornerstone. So perfect that it will not only serve as a stone upon which we can build, but will also set us up to be successful as we measure out, as we decide how to build the rest of this building. And builders knew that without an absolutely perfect cornerstone, the entire building would would just drift out of plumb. It wouldn't work. And so again, tons of stones would be rejected, others would be used, but one would be chosen to be the cornerstone. And so the imagery here is that the most rejected stone, can't use that stone, the most rejected stone will not only be moved out of the reject pile to the accepted pile, but would be the the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone upon which everything would be built and set in order. Jesus, the rejected Messiah, will be the redeemer and the cornerstone. It's not in your outline, but Psalm 118, beginning in verse 22, says this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then a very familiar psalm. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's the context of that particular verse. Which brings us to point number two. You will decide if Jesus is the foundation of your faith or the stone by which you're judged. The title of the sermon is Stepping Stone or Stumbling Block. And that's because to everyone on God's green earth, Jesus will be one of those two things. He will be the the stepping stone, the foundation upon which you stand for your relationship with God. He will be the means by which you are lifted out of your state of sin and death and suffering and guilt and raised up and given access to the throne of grace, access that you and I would never have without him. He'll either be the stepping stone, the foundation, or he'll be a stumbling block over which you'll trip. You'll live your life, but one thing is unavoidable, and that is death. And once death comes, if you haven't tripped over Jesus thus far, you will stumble over the truth of the gospel, and you will rightly fall into judgment because your guilt remains. Your sin remains unpaid for, and the wrath of God remains on you, and therefore you must pay. And because you didn't believe in Jesus Christ to be saved, then you will pay by yourself. But make no mistake, friends, your feet will meet Jesus. You will confront this stone. You will decide if you will stand on Christ as the foundation of your faith or if you'll stumble over him in judgment. Earlier in your outline, we spoke about some verses that reminded us of the patience, the persistence, the pursuing God that we know and love. Isaiah 30 and verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. But the very next words are, for the Lord is a God of justice. He will do what is right. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, again, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The very next verse, verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so God patiently pursues his people. 
persistently pursues his people, longing for people to be saved, to be adopted into the family of God. And although he's not desirous of people to suffer, he's not wanting people to suffer, he is also a God of justice. He's a God of grace and mercy, but also a God of justice. And so you and everyone who ever walked God's green earth will decide, what will you do with this Jesus? Will he be the stone upon which you stand? Will he be the foundation for your faith? Or will he be the stone upon which you are judged? Now, if you recall, earlier I said Jesus always used illustrations that were very familiar to his immediate audience. He's a great, great teacher. That was the case with the owner of the vineyard. Again, not, this is not uncommon. He's familiar with it. The vineyard itself, seen one, seen them all. Tenant farmers, this happened often. The switch in imagery to stones, a little different. Surely if you're in construction, you're more familiar with that imagery, but it's not that people are not like, what's a stone? I'm not sure. So it's still very, people are still very familiar with these with these images. None of this was hard for them to picture. I think for Jesus's original audience, the imagery that hit home most is in verse 18. Where Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I think of all the images, of all the pictures that Jesus has painted in the mind's eye of the audience that he is talking to, this one hits home the most. Like you and I read that, and I would venture to say, if you're anything like me, like, okay, anyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. If you're anything like me, the closest you can come to picturing a stone crushing someone is probably Wiley Coyote. Right? It's not like you, you're like, yeah, stones, crushing, stones be crushing people, man. Saw two of them on the way to church today. Like, that's not a thing. We don't see stones crushing people all the time. And so you're going to try to picture it, but what do you have to go on? Like, you've probably not seen somebody crushed by a stone. And so we picture, like, I picture Wiley Coyote, right, the whole Roadrunner thing, and he holds up a sign, and the sign says help or mommy or something like that, and all of a sudden, pff, he's flattened to a pancake, and it fades to black, and he comes back, and he's like, putting together some dynamite, always made by Acme. Trying, you know, like, like, that's how I'm picturing this because I have no reality with which to check my picture. I've never, I've not seen anyone crushed by a stone. That wouldn't have been true in Jesus' day. That wouldn't have been true for the people who are listening to Jesus speak. And that's because of capital punishment. And the fact that executions were done in public, particularly stonings, which, where people were stoned to death for having been found guilty of breaking a law. Now, a little bit about stonings to try to help us get a better picture of what they would have pictured as Jesus closes out his parable with these words. Some stonings are what I'll call rogue stonings. Rogue stonings. They, they kind of come out of nowhere. And so... An example of this would be the stoning of Stephen the martyr that we read about in the book of Acts, right? Like he's speaking, he's preaching, and people get so upset, so angry. It says they stopped their ears. It literally says they rushed him. And so this was not like a, hey, why don't we stone this guy? 
Who's in? Everyone in? Stoning on three? That's not what this was. This was an emotional mob rule that literally was so angry with what Stephen was saying that they picked up stones, rushed him, and stoned him to death, and he died. That's what I'm calling a rogue stoning. Like, wow, didn't see that coming. It just happened. He's dead. That's a rogue stoning. But that's, that's different. That's not capital punishment. When people were stoned because they were guilty of breaking a law, it looked very different. You say, guilty of breaking what kind of a law? I'll give you some examples of things you could be stoned for according to the Bible. Touching Mount Sinai. Breaking the Sabbath. Cursing God. Blasphemy. Idolatry. Someone who entices another to commit idolatry. Stone him. Rebellion against parents. Lying about being a virgin at marriage. Stone her. That's just a sampling of some of the laws that, if broken, you could be stoned for in Jesus' day and age, which is probably worth pausing to say, we all deserve to be stoned. Right? Like, there's not a one of us. This room would be pretty empty if stoning was still a thing, right? Disobedient to parents. Breaking the Sabbath, like, we all deserve to be stoned. Verse 18, again, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The Jewish Mishnah, it's a written record of oral traditions passed down by the Jews. Explains how, like it's basically the Jews' version of like, this is how we do it. Like it tells how they lived life. But things that were formally just passed down from generation to generation orally, people were like, let's write this down. Pass it from generation to generation. It's in something called the Mishnah. One of the things explained within the Mishnah is how someone would have been stoned for capital punishment. And so the first thing it says is the place of stoning uh, would be twice a man's height. And so I'm preaching. We'll call an average man's height 5'9". Let's say it's six feet, whatever. So twice a man's height. So picture a a pit that's six times two is 12. So about 12 feet deep. So the place of stoning would be twice a man's height. And then it says the primary witness or the accuser of the person would take the person who would be bound and they would, it specifically says, quote, push him by the hips. And so the person's bound. Uh, They are guilty. They are being sentenced to death. And somebody would come up behind that person and by the hips push them into this 12-foot drop and he would land in a pit face down. A pit that would be full of rocks. 
It says, push him by the hips so that he would be overturned on his heart. Then he was turned on his back. It says, if that caused his death, he had fulfilled his duty. But if not, if I was turned on his back, is he dead? Mission accomplished. If not, the second witness would take a large stone and drop it 12 feet down onto the chest of the person who had been found guilty of breaking a law. If he died thereby, he had done his duty. But if not, he, the criminal, was, quote, stoned by all Israel. So we drop another, we drop another, we drop another, we drop another. And so look again at verse 18 and imagine how people felt, what people pictured when they heard Jesus say, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Imagine what they pictured when Jesus says, when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus always used illustrations very familiar with his people. And so what they understand Jesus to be doing is to saying, you will be judged, you will be found guilty, but you will not escape, you will be condemned to death because you have rejected the Son of God because you have rejected Christ as Messiah. The rejected stone has become the cornerstone and will also be the stone by which you die. Friends, we all have decisions to make in life. We don't all have the same decisions. Some of us have Circumstances that others of us don't have. Some of us have medical conditions that others of us don't have. Some of us have kids that others of us don't have. Some of us, I mean, there's just a variety. We all make decisions. We don't all make the same decisions. But the one decision that everybody, regardless of age, socioeconomic status, education level, gender, race, all the things, regardless of that, the one decision that everybody will make also happens to be the most important decision that you will ever make in your life, and that is simply this. What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with him? Do you be- what do you do with his claims? What do you do with the fact that he claims to be the very son of God? What do you do with the fact that he says, I've come... To die for sinners. What do you do about the fact that he died, was buried, and rose again? Do you put your faith and trust in this 
this truth? Do you put your faith and trust in the gospel? Is this the stone upon which you will stand a firm foundation for your faith by which you can approach the throne of grace with no shame, no guilt, no fear, but with boldness and love and acceptance? Or will you not stand on this stone but be judged under it? Will you not use this stone for which it was sent but say, I'll have nothing, I, I, I want nothing to do with it. I don't want to stand on that stone. I want to acknowledge that stone. But you will one day meet that stone and instead of standing on it, you will be under it because you will be judged and condemned for unbelief. What will you do with Jesus? That is the point, that is the crux of this parable reminding these people that because of rejecting Jesus, they will be judged, they will be condemned, they will be found guilty, and they will be sentenced to death if they don't believe. And the good news for everyone who hears this message is that today is the day of salvation, which I feel like I say all the time. But I say it all the time because it is always true. As long as you have life, as long as you have breath, as long as you can hear the gospel, as long as you could read God's word, you have the opportunity, literally, of a lifetime to choose Jesus, to say, I believe he did what he said he did. I believe that God the Father is satisfied with his payment. I believe that I owe nothing. I believe that I can now approach the throne of grace with no fear. I believe that I can, I believe I can have a relationship with God. I'm going to live a life now of repentance and trying to please God, not so I get into heaven, but because I'm already in heaven. So I'm going to live this life of responsive worship, of trying to please God, of trying to be more like Jesus and less like myself, of putting off the old, of being renewed in the spirit of my mind and putting on the new person that I am in Christ Jesus. You have that opportunity today to choose to stand on this stone, this foundation for Salvation, this foundation of faith that can only be found in Jesus Christ. But that opportunity will not always be here. That opportunity will not always be around because everybody's clock is ticking and because tomorrow is promised to no one. And so we say along with Luke in his other book in Acts chapter 4, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, we all deserve to be stoned. But God in his grace and mercy has given us the opportunity to not be crushed by that stone, but to stand on that stone as our foundation of saving faith. If you believe Jesus Christ, if you believe that God is satisfied with his payment on your behalf, you will be saved. 
Father in heaven, we come before you grateful for your gospel. Lord, we are, it's a sobering reminder. We're humbled. Uh, We are, we're reminded of how much you have loved us. We're reminded of the fact that you have sent your son for sinners like us. We're reminded of the fact that we are altogether unworthy. That we have not merited the goodness that you've shown us in Christ. But we are so grateful for your sovereign grace and mercy. Lord, we're grateful that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Thank you for your grace. We are grateful that you have given those of us who believe more than we could ever, ever merit on our own. Thank you for your grace. Lord, would you now remind those of us who know you and love you of your love for us? Would you restore unto us the joy of our salvation? And Lord, for your glory and the good of your people, oh God in heaven, would you save souls? Would you draw people unto yourself this day for your glory? And for our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.